and welcome to another i'm not gonna call it episode exactly of really true fiction yeah addendum number (laughs) two two. (laughs) the second addendum (laughs) welcome to a reflection by the participants of really true fiction As a dandum to really true fiction. I can't make it any clearer than that. There we go. I mean, we basically (laughs) solved it. Uh, My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And similar to a previous addendum that I did with my sister, Joelle, David and I are kind of just hanging around our house because we're in the midst of this (laughs) quarantine isolation. We're recording this episode on April 27th, 2020. It's a Monday. For anyone who's a stickler for said things. About six weeks in now to yeah. quarantine, I think. 12, 10 p.m. Yeah, we're Mountain Standard really Time. Exact, really exact here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so it's been about a month, I guess, since Joelle and I recorded the first one. And so we were thinking, again, just because of like, the surreal nature and how it feels less surreal now because it's like... The new just normal. The new normal, exactly. We thought it would be maybe interesting or at least... Would you call it historically responsible for our own <laughs> self narratives to keep a little record of how this is going for us, you know, and how it impacts kind of the world and the way we think about it? So, yeah, we're just here to, we have no notes. This is, uh, we're free balling this one, which is something we can do a lot more now because we're at home all the time, <laughs> you might say. <laughs> well, I guess you were at home and then you went back to work and. Yes, uh... yes, for. Um, Probably all four of you who are actually interested in this. The agency I work for has a pandemic plan. I'm pretty sure this is the first time it's ever had to be used. And so I think it was March 15th or 16th, whatever the Monday is of that week, it was put into place. And so I was reassigned to a group home as opposed to an after-school program. And I worked there for about three weeks. And then I was temporarily laid off because funding and... I was under the impression it was going to be a 60-day layoff, and at least at, at of this recording, it was a 14-day layoff before I was recalled back. So I'm back working again at the group home, and that's actually going really well. I have been building relationships with the teens at the group home, and that's been really nice. One of the things I wanted to ask you about that is, as a essential service worker, mm-hmm. um, you're going out there in a way that I guess not all of us are. How does it feel to still, you know be you know everyone's supposed to stay home and we're all (laughs) you know so well i don't think terrified is the right word but we're told to be frightened by this thing and and that we're preserving lives Mm. by staying indoors and yet because of the nature of what you do you can't do that and Mm. does it feel what's the kind of the um i don't know what's your state of being in that right at first when I was reassigned, it was a little bit more of apprehension because this was like during when everything was happening. I don't know. There's like that two week period in the middle of March to the end of March where it just felt like every day was a century of life changing yeah. <laughs> updates. Right. Yeah, like, oh, all the sports yeah. are canceled. Yeah. <laughs> like every day there was a major announcement from some major institution in Canada or the United States or Europe. And so at first I was like really apprehensive because there was like a lot of unknowing like just ignorance around, well, epidemiologically, the uh, virus itself. <laughs> we don't know much we, about yeah, it. We still still see that. Yeah, there's, we're still kind of, of in that boat. Yeah. But it was also just like, 
I don't know any, like it's a new environment. It's a new work. It's a completely different kind. I mean, not a completely different kind of work, but a very different kind of work from what I was doing. So I was like apprehensive about that. And so I was, and you just being out, you're nervous. You're just like a little nervous. Subsequently, maybe it's complacency, but because I personally haven't met anyone with COVID or met anyone with symptoms of COVID or seen it in action or have anyone, I I don't know anybody who's had it, right? So it's still a, experientially speaking, it's something I haven't ever come across yet. So it's, it's just not, it doesn't resonate powerfully with me in a way that it would if it had. And so I don't think about it so much. And it's like, the truth is I don't interact much with the public. Even when I go to work, it's just at the house. And there's all these procedures at the house for the kids who do. Or, or like what to do. Like we're bleaching a lot more. Right. <laughs> right? That kind right. of thing. So to, yeah, the bleach industry is going to uh, do <laughs> yeah, really it's well. Funny which this. industries are going to come well. I, I would say more than anything, I just, I'm more conscious of things like coughs, but I haven't seen anybody with one and, and none of the people at work. And as the weather has been getting nicer, I've, I've noticed it more like on bike rides, people are just exercising. And so it's weird. It's weird because our experts are a little bit mixed signals, but mostly being like, we need to stay in more, which fair enough. That's, you know, people are, should be experts for a reason. But at the same time, it's like, we don't know, like in the world where this ends up being a lot less serious, not that it's not serious, but less serious than its most dire prognostications made it out to be. It's making me feel a little bit like, well, when do we restart, right? Because well, I think it's emerging. I think. I mean, well, I think uh, <laughs> the restart so is in, emerging in organically. My, yeah. Anyway, in my work, we've been doing a lot of polling on this issue of, for obvious reasons. And about four weeks ago, eighteen percent of people felt that the the lockdown was an overreaction. We're up to thirty four now. Oh, so it's like doubled. And I think we're going to see thirty four percent of Canadians. Well, of of certain party supporters. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Okay. Non-random sample. Non, non-random sample, but uh, <laughs> an important sample in my work. And I'm hearing it more and more now from various sources of people being like, this is getting ridiculous. Uh, some of my business friends are talking about all the people they know who are going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this offline a fair bit before, but one of the striking features of this for me is the shared experience Mm. that everyone's going through where in a way that I think even 9-11 pales in comparison now we are all talking about the same topic Mm -hmm. we all now have something that we're going through and and it's different (laughs) for people uh Joelle and I were talking about this last night it's different for people whose lives have remained relatively the same because they're essential workers right but even your your work has been overturned I have not seen anyone outside of my immediate or extended family besides one trip to the or two trips to the grocery store in Mm -hmm. or people that I walk by on my daily excursions into the world on your your daily constitutional (laughs) yeah I know it's it's uh now yeah. you know what it was like to be Kant. <laughs> exactly. My they sent their watches by my daily walks for my health. <laughs> That's funny. And I'm not sure what the end result is gonna be, but I think uh one of the things that you'd mentioned before off podcast was a lot of unconscious reality is coming to the forefront of our consciousness now. Mm. 
you had mentioned, I just wish that I could have a fire in the backyard and have beers with my friends. Well, yeah. Uh, on that note, though, I, I read actually there isn't a fire ban in Calgary. There is going to be in one in Edmonton. It's Edmonton City Council that's planning on passing uh, it. So that's probably where you heard it. I just I just uh, found I that out today, too. Oh, you mean um, the second best city in Alberta? <laughs> The petty tyrannies <laughs> Although, of, of municipal government. I have to say this now. Okay. My dad is from Edmonton, and he grew up there. And he told me this joke. And I guess you'll appreciate this because you're an Oilers fan. <laughs> True. <laughs> Why does everyone in Calgary have to drink off plates and saucers? Because <laughs> Edmonton has all the cups. <laughs> okay, nice, nice. <laughs> so, little... Uh, Inside hockey, Alberta rivalry there for <laughs> anyone who's a listener those... not in Alberta. <laughs> okay, so um, anyway, going back to the fire ban, having a fire. Mm, yeah. Now, it's not. A, I don't think it's as if you didn't appreciate, you loved having people over in fires and beers around the fire before. Mm. But now, you're realizing that's the thing you miss most. Mm-hmm. And that's being brought to your consciousness. What do you think that tells you about what you appreciate in life oh yeah well i mean i think it's summed up pretty nicely in that line from the bible uh, man shall not live on bread alone in, in like a philosophically vital sense we need other people do you know do you remember how we um i think it was maybe in the lion the witch and the Warge episode i can't remember but the the uh, idea of the simple but vital truth to right. human well-being, right? Yeah. I think the simple but vital truth coming out of this is that we need the companionship of other people we care about. Like it's it's and we need it in a way that isn't exactly the same in the way that we need food or water. We need it in a way that is psychologically similar. And so things like fire pits and beers around the fire and songs and games, backyard games, all of those are facilitating that kind of second-order pleasure, which is the revelry and happiness that comes out from that scenario with the people you're around. So it's like you plan the barbecue, right? Or you plan the croquet game, or you plan the fire, you buy the beers. But what you don't plan is, and you plan the people who will come, potentially, right? Like you invite people. But what you can't plan is the ways in which they bring you pleasure, Exactly. You can generally know that the people are going to bring you pleasure with their senses of humor and their idiosyncratic personalities, but that doesn't mean the joy is any less when it happens, right? Well, it's it's funny that you say that because looking at uh, what happened uh, this weekend or this past weekend, my sister got married to mm-hmm, someone right. she met at one of your fires in the yeah, backyard. You well, go. not met, but that would probably be Bonded. The, the moment of the spark. Uh, oh, from the fire? From, yeah, that was uh, it was that night. Uh, when literal meets figurative. <laughs> oh, I see what you're doing there. I missed it. I'm sorry. Right over my head. Um, While you're sitting. <laughs> So don't take it lying I, down, David. I, I, I'm gonna just take it. I did gut punches. You're yeah. just you, you're throwing them, and I'm taking them. I'm lobbing. I just can't hit it out of the park yet. I'll get oh. there. I'll get there. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, like, I guess it's great that they met. I, I, I it made me think of something else too. Like that's just another thing is um things like weddings and funerals. I know, right? Like the the kind of the the cultural institutions that we've built up around the kind of big moments of life uh, death and marriage and i mean probably birth too although i think birth is birth has lost i think some of its social mm-hmm. uh, significance 
but not any. But because it, it used to be the baptism was kind of right. like yeah. the yeah, yeah, cultural that's a good touch point. point. Obviously, the hospitals aren't and the hospitals, denying no. pregnant women entrance. When <laughs> no. they need to so get the birth. babies are still being born. Yeah. Um, but those three th- like births, weddings, and death and funerals, they're basically like sacred in our culture, and yet two of them are having to take a back seat. At well, least. Yeah, well, I right? was reading an article today about a lady who the last time she got to see her husband was March 20th, and he died, uh, I guess, a few days ago. Was he in hospital? In hospital. Mm. And this whole not even being able to be with your loved ones as they are dying yeah. is another, I think, huge shift in societal norms well that would be the end point of the continuum of the of the like human need for that companionship like the the way we're describing of the friendship around the campfire drinking beer and just chatting and shooting the shit that kind of love the end of that spectrum is the loss of a loved one and then you can't even see them well, it's like that right de- like death cab for cutie song right love yeah. is watching someone die <laughs> yeah. right i mean i mean it's and, and, and fairly so, morbid but and, i think there's a lot of truth to and that. then but like what need is not being addressed there and this is really tricky and complicated but i was listening to one of my actually the first podcast i ever listened to is called the partially examined life which is a philosophy podcast and they were doing their own kind of like corona political theory take on the situation they don't do many current events but they did that one and one of the guys on there was talking about how one of the things that's really coming out that he's noticing is that we don't have a good calculus or what would be the right word we don't have a good transference or a, a good i don't know transfer of units between human lives we don't have a good exchange we don't yeah there it is good we don't rate. we don't have a good exchange rate between human life from covid and human psychological misery from not being able to see other people well this is always <laughs> like been we a... don't have that and it's like almost no. a taboo to broach right but like no. presumably exists at some level in terms of like eventually there would have to be a number of deaths from covid that is low enough for us to uh, stop this mental suffering well, we're going I, through we're seeing a weird social experiment on this point because mm. you go to sweden and they've not done the lockdown, right yeah, yeah, yeah and now they're seeing they've seen a doubling of the rate of death that, that they had last year so mm. n- not all recorded for COVID. This is the interesting thing about the data, right? <laughs> right. And the social choices that we're making. Because there is one way to measure pretty accurately right. what's happening. And it's not, has the person been tested for COVID and that they, it's, so this is the normal death rate. Mm. And this is what how many people are dying now. Right. And in Sweden, it's doubled. Okay. So twice as many people now are dying every, well, every day. Right. Than we're dying. And yet, interestingly, but they don't have they won't have the economic downfall. But they won't have the economic, and so so if if suddenly things get very bad in Sweden and it keeps getting worse, and they eventually have to lock down, well, then we know it's yeah, it's a, yeah, an experiment, yeah, yeah. Hor- horrifically, you know, an experiment with human life in a mm-hmm. sense, but uh, an experiment on a social society level scale of what happens when we do right. something different. Well, I mean, I don't think. Sweden itself. Well, I mean, I hope the leaders of Sweden itself isn't using this as an experiment. They're no, doing what no, they actually I, think is the I right think thing to I do. I think they do. And the interesting thing is, they're thinking the right thing to do is something different than what the vast majority sure, of the world yeah. has decided. Yeah, but I mean, it would be irresponsible of the rest of the world to not learn from that 
model. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. That would be the well, wasted and I think experiment. Maybe it would give, you know, the people making these choices, the policymakers, some confidence. Mm-hmm. If, or or yeah. it will give the people a standard to hold. Sure their leaders too so yeah, yeah, i think yeah. it's it's interesting okay well this opens the door to a, a related but different point but i'll set it up this way the example of sweden right now in the coronavirus situation it greatly humors me in this sense uh it, it demonstrates to me the absolute fickleness fecklessness and unreliability and unimpressiveness of political partisanship because prior to coronavirus, Sweden is the progressive's darling. Yes, right. right. It is the yeah. it is the country that is the functional socialist utopia for everyone who wants to think about things in that manner. And yet, post coronavirus, and this actually, I, I want to flag this because maybe talk about it later. This might actually be a sign of its of COVID's rising to the level of needing to be paid attention to but not so bad that it consumes everything because again it's demonstrated what political camp you're in by how people respond to what's going on right yes and it's interesting how quickly it flip-flops because this is kind of the point i'm making is that previous to covid sweden is the socialist darling but now because it's the one that hasn't shut down and yet it's the uh left wing's talking points and line to toe about how if you don't stay home you're a horrible person. Yes. <laughs> what yes. happens now when your country that is your paradigm of utopia for your socialist agenda isn't doing what the talking points of your political hackery want it to be. Well, it's, doing. it's it's orthodoxy versus heterodoxy, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and it's interesting that our I mean I've been reading a lot about people's view on how society has reacted mm-hmm. to this like things are being accepted as gospel yeah um it's like you can't go outside well think about it before coronavirus it was the liberal or the more progressive like mayors of new york city who are like because then it's framed in an anti-asian sense right it's like go out yeah go mix with your, eat food they were gonna have yeah. lunar new year in january kind of thing yeah, like yeah. celebrate that and it was kind of, and especially on the internet, it was more right of center people like, so this coronavirus is for real. Like, we need to be worried about it. Yeah. And now that it's happened and the government has shut down, it's totally flipped. <laughs> the right wing people <laughs> are the right like, hey, let us out of our protesting. <laughs> and the, and the left wing people are saying, hey, like, fucker, stay in your home. Nothing is worth a human life. <laughs> now, I, again, because I'm not, I don't really consider myself very, uh, in in the, historical political sense i don't really consider myself right wing when i see people protesting in the united states holding signs of i need a haircut that seems pretty callous to me as a reason for leaving the house ah, terribly callous <laughs> right like, like so i don't want to romanticize or one side and demonize only one it's just funny to me because it's a more of a meta point that if this coronavirus has done anything for my like self satisfaction it's such a great example of the unprincipled nature of political partisanship. That's uh, all. It, uh, I, yeah, I got to be careful here. But um. <laughs> well, I'm talking philosophically, right? Right. Like it's like in a matter of six weeks, I've seen what are considered to be the two sides of the aisle completely switch sides. It seems to me, and then kind of switch back, but not really. Right. Yeah. So now, again, because probably between our medical professionals and our social distancing, we have done a pretty good job, at least in Canada, and certainly in Alberta, of flattening the curve. Like, yeah. I think we're doing a good job of that as a society. Kudos to the people who made it happen. Because of that, COVID isn't as bad as it could be. 
And because it's not as bad, because we aren't faced with this kind of impending disaster being as bad as it could be, people have time to get into their shouting matches online again. <laughs> but so, now they have something new to shout about. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, and I think this, oh, there's so many things, so many good points there and so many things to say. Yeah, sorry, I but, take it where you want. But one of the things that I've thought a lot about through this process is how much this exposes the human need to have identity in some kind of team that you're on, right? And, oh, we're against the government or we're for the government. Oh, we're racist or we're not racist. Like, you look at the paradigm of, you know, the New York mayor. Yeah, where he's like, let's go to, you know, go and celebrate these things. These right-wing racists don't want you hanging out with Chinese people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but don't don't listen to them. We love our Chinese friends, right? And then suddenly... They're like, anyone who goes outside is, a, is you know, a Nazi. Mm, yeah. right? All that tells us is that people are trying to manipulate other people with rhetoric. Mm. That's all it is. <laughs> it's, it's rhetoric to convince a group of people of the rightness of your individual cause. I wonder if that's ever happened before. <laughs> well, this is during this one this wondrous time of self-reflection that we've been given. I uh I've been listening to a ton of Dan Carling's podcast Hardcore History on on the right now I'm listening to the the death throes of the republic. And this it's it's startling how cyclical it seems to where we're at right now where mm where people were rallied around populist messaging by Roman generals for for their personal gain. Mm, yeah. And when enemies were or like, you know, the specter of of some evil external threat mm-hmm. was utilized to gain personal power mm-hmm. for those involved, the corruption of the Senate. All of this is pointing to the manipulation of the masses for personal gain Mm. right and or some agenda yeah and and the weird thing about this virus is that it's so separate from our conscious lived reality Mm -hmm. and yet it 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 was it's such as it's such a um a foreign idea yeah right that we would have to stay in our homes because some little thing is killing (laughs) us right yeah and 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 importantly this little thing that because it's of nature it transcends our political exactly predilection so it doesn't give a fuck about any of those but even this you know amoral virus is being contextualized within power-seeking rhetoric Mm. right yeah and we have on one side and this is the weird part. This is what this is what is making me rethink a lot of my even understandings of reality. There's too much data on either side. And I'll give you an example. Okay. In Canada, the average age of the person who's died from COVID-19 right now is 84 years old. Mm. That is higher than the average life expectancy <laughs> of Canadians. Right. So that data point yeah. would, could make you say... Like, what on earth are we doing? Mm-hmm. Like, we're trying to preserve the the last six months to two years mm. of people's lives, and we're shutting down the whole economy. Yeah. And you have another perspective, and that's of the medical worker, who in, I mean, hundreds of medical workers have died in, in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. And so you have the, these frontline soldiers who are essentially, we, we as a society are saying, and Boris Johnson is one of the leading voices on this in England, mm-hmm. no, we have to protect 
our medical system. Mm-hmm. And that was right. kind of one of the rallying cries that actually produced this lockdown and, and frankly, our concession to have the lockdown as citizens. Because we're like, well, that makes sense. I guess that argument makes sense. A third data point, right, is that we're seeing medical journals coming out with brain damage, permanent lung damage from this from this virus. And all all of this is happening and we're getting all this information and it's very difficult to f- to figure out what's actually going on. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. we're we're awash in data and this is a perfect mirror of what's wrong with our society mm. is we are we we're going confirmations bias all the yeah. way through. So if you're say someone who automatically distrust the government mm-hmm. you're saying things like this is going to be the greatest public policy failure right in history you know what then like this just occurred to me we need someone who is scientifically literate but who can still tell a story that sparks the imagination of kind of like the popular or the people for some sort of action right like so we need a carl sagan type person who can understand the science of the virus but also knows people yeah. and knows the way to spark the way that their hearts and minds work to figure out good behavior and good policy even coming out of all this, right? Because I think I mentioned to you, I can't remember it was on any podcast, but there's a lot about this virus that I baffles me about what's happening. But what doesn't baffle me, and it, it's so crazy to think about, is that one of the side effects of COVID. So COVID is medically bad enough to need a lockdown, but it's not medically chaotic enough for us to feel like the lockdown is justified all the time, yeah. right? So it's not medically chaotic in the sense that people aren't dying in the streets, at least not in Canada. Like I've heard stories about Latin America and other places that we would have probably a very different perspective if we were living there kind of thing, right? And they have different healthcare systems, et cetera, different infrastructure. But because at least on April 27th in Calgary, I haven't seen anyone of it, let alone anyone dying in the streets. Since it doesn't rise medically to that level, it's put it's it's put all of our social life into chaos. So because it's not medically chaotic, it's socially chaotic. And it, I like I use that word not literally chaotic in the sense that, you know, everyone's in their house. So there isn't anarchy. It's right. not yet. <laughs> but And the government's but, giving everyone enough money to buy food. But it is putting our kind of social life and social psychological life into this kind of maelstrom that we don't know where the end is, right? No. We get given dates. Well, we get told all summer now. Yeah. Right? So but, we don't get to hang out with our friends all summer. But so so here's my here's my point on this that I that I'm finding intellectually fascinating. I want to hear your thoughts on. Let's take this metaphorical person, this this Carl Sagan like figure that you have uh mm have you have brought into our conversation yeah the only way that that person could actually figure out let's call it the truth and the problem here is that there is no truth it seems like there's there's everyone's opinion is he would have to empty himself of previous biases sure like complete and, and become open to all data and then have the intellectual capacity and character mm. to craft a narrative that that was not predisposed to an outcome. Mm-hmm. And this is so that's about COVID. But but 
on an internal level, it's really making me realize just how much cognitive bias mm. I and others have in, in the interpretation of the data that we receive. Yeah. And that articulates something that I've brought up in the podcast, but I want to work on here is the the argument and the, 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 the mission, the mental journey that you're on should not be to be right. Okay. It should be to be less wrong. Yeah. Right? And we're seeing this is like, so the problem is that everyone wants to be right. They want to be on the good side. Mm-hmm. So it's like stay in your houses. They're they're literally calling like they're there's hotlines where people are calling in and saying, My neighbors on their front lawn, they're not properly socially distancing. <laughs> and then you have people accusing these people of essentially being Nazi sympathizers because that's what you know, they're being rats. Yeah. And it's like have we lost the ability <laughs> To not um, color any information that we get through some so through through a rather simple lens, I guess I would say. Uh, one point there is that one of the reasons why we grasp to our old faithfuls, which is whatever lens we see it through, is because we just actually, I, I honestly think we don't know enough about this virus yet. Yeah, like there's a paucity of information and data about the epidemiological nature of COVID nineteen, so. It's kind of like there's this term in evolution called just so stories, right? Are you familiar with this concept? No. Okay, so just so story is because so much of the theory of evolution is in the way back history, <laughs> right? So it's like you could you could plausibly tell a story about a trait uh, that a organism has in the modern day for what it evolved for, right? And since the specificity of your story on that trait is so specific it's like it's not verifiable or falsifiable in in either way right so it's like it's not yes or no it's more or less and so i think i can't remember dan dennett maybe coined the term it's a just so story like it sounds good enough right right and and i think that we're we're kind of and that's not the point of this The point is that i think that there's a parallel here where we have these just so stories about covid where it's like oh yeah one person can tell the story it's like well average age is 84 people who die I'm 33. Fuck it. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. right? Like yeah. now that doesn't mean 33 year olds wouldn't die from this or couldn't contract. Like we just don't know enough. It's like the one data point isn't triangulated enough with other data points for us to have a coherent message about it. Right. So I think when you don't have enough data, you do get these just so stories that come in based on what our, you know, like you very well said, our biases anyway. Right. So that's a, that's a big problem. But, uh, but here's here's another problem, and maybe the problem that I'm getting at. When you're stuck in your in those biases, mm. then it doesn't matter what data comes in. You're going to have confirmation bias. Uh, okay, but I, I I think everyone who we would have to consider sane would have a threshold. Now those thresholds might be at different places, but if there were people coughing their lungs out on the street coughing up blood and just perishing i think it would be a lot harder for people's cognitive biases to remain intact in the same way so i only put it at that extreme level to say that there is a point i think where most people more or less well i think smoking is actually a really good mm -hmm. uh, example of that yeah because you know 
there was a time where people were like, oh, no, smoking doesn't hurt you. Yeah. And then eventually got to the point where the, the evidence was so overwhelming that if you think smoking doesn't hurt you, you're a tiny minority who well, probably and, doesn't care about and facts. And so, yeah, anyway. like in that example, we're in the stage of like we're in the 1950s when it comes to smoking or 1960s where like there's a few people who are talking about it, but we don't like we still don't have enough studies. Right. right or if right. we do have enough studies, who knows what the interests are? I, I think probably <laughs> I don't mean this cynically. I think what will actually happen with COVID is that it will probably settle in to another one of the dangers and risks out there when we leave our house. Right. Which I think is probably appropriate in the same way that we kind of reflectively have to look both ways before we cross a street. We are going to wash and sanitize our hands a lot more when we go out. We might even wear masks more. And yet, because of, I do think it's a human necessity to take action in the world we can't sit in our houses forever like <laughs> eventually things like our food supplies will go away yeah. if that if everyone yeah. does that right yeah yeah i don't know i i i think the biases are natural and i think they're even augmented in a situation like this because covid's not as medically chaotic as it could be or as other plagues yeah, have I, been i agree you i know? think that's a good insight is that it's just bad enough that yeah. it could shut down our society but mm-hmm. it's not bad enough that, and that we're all terrified it shows it. our interdependency like it really puts into glare okay more general point we were talking about this before this covid we're getting an uncanny valley of our norms and institutions in the sense that so much of public life when things aren't terrible let's say or they're subconscious, right? We just kind of take for granted that the grocery stores have food and that they have toilet paper, for example, right? Or like we we have so much plenty that a lot of our norms and our just expectations about the world around us in Canada are taken for granted. And now we're having to actually think consciously about stuff that has been unconscious. Like, yeah, geez, like what does happen like where how much business do we want to do with china <laughs> right like how where does our food come from do we what really want to shake hands yeah do yeah. we want to shake hands i was talking to you a little bit about like what are gonna be some norms that come out of all of this when we do reintegrate into society and this is especially interesting to the philosophy nerd in me because i was actually just listening yesterday to one of jordan peterson's 2017 lectures on the on the biblical series and like the psychological significance of the bible stories in the old testament and he was talking about wolves and he was talking about how what philosophers seem to actually do often or like people who write about the world is that they notice a pattern of behavior over time and then write rules for that pattern of behavior and he was talking about how wolves like the alpha will beat one of the other wolves the wolf beaten will show its neck to show that the alpha has defeated it and then often the alpha won't kill it because they need to hunt as a pack and it's it would be a mistake to say that the wolves are following rules because they haven't made their own rules for this but it's like their pattern of behavior and i think there's a correlation here with like human norms i think norms just kind of are a pattern of human behavior that there's like trillions of human interactions over time where these norms just kind of build up in a culture right and so then you and i are born in the 80s and we inherit that in our culture we shake hands when we meet somebody right and we ask about people's day and we um, or how are you yeah even like and things that are even more subconscious like how much distance we are comfortable with giving another person when we're passing them on the sidewalk 
Not standing right? beside another person like, at a urinal. For, for, yeah, <laughs> forget about COVID. People in Korea don't have the same spatial on sidewalk in general, the same norms as we do in Canada because Korea is just a tighter country in terms of like smaller with more people. They're more comfortable with being in a crowd right, <laughs> than right. we are, right? So personal space even. So all of these things, I'm really interested in what are the new norms? What what, what new social norms are going to come out of something that we have to be consciously making instead of subconsciously ingesting through the culture? Yeah. <laughs> like that is not something we do well. No. I don't think because it's awkward. It's like, what are you going to do the first time someone offers their hand to you and you have to say, I don't actually shake hands anymore. <laughs> right? I give you a bow. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, like, that's all not answering any questions, it's just bringing more, but I'm fascinated by, like, do we have the capacity to create our own norms? And do do we have the <laughs> conscious, like, are we yeah. going are, are to consciously create new norms? And here's mm. really a really fascinating question, right? Are we going to consciously create new norms, or are we going to just let whatever begins happening again mm. define us in the subconscious and we never bring it to our conscious? I think some will. Yeah. I, think, I think we are going to fall back. Obviously, there's some habits that we're going to fall back into unless we see people, again, because we're visceral experiential creatures until pe- like it, it hits home, people will fall back into old routines. Yeah. Right? Habits are... <laughs> Hab- habits die hard. <laughs> they they <laughs> right? do. They do. And and so at some point, I mean, and, and this isn't... I don't, I don't mean this as a political statement. I mean this as like a human mental well-being statement because of the kind of primary need for people to do things in life, which involve now in the modern context, leaving our homes to do stuff and seeing friends and all of those necessities of human life, COVID is going to have to somehow become part of the mental category of other risks in the world that we face, like traffic, like other diseases that are out there, like poisonous mushrooms, right? Like food, like the world is dangerous. And I think COVID, like in has, countries where you know poisonous snakes are a thing, exactly, that you have to just right? constantly have in your mind. This is why I think I've referred to this before as a, an atavism of of our species history, grabbing our legs as we whistle past the graveyard, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, like right. this is a great reminder that we are the same species that struggled for hundreds of thousands of years in the savanna. <laughs> yeah, really not that different, and we have. There's just things in the natural world that wipe us out. And the difference is we live in a in an era where we can see COVID as a virus and and at least have like a, a better idea of what it's hurting versus before the scientific paradigm, it would have been like, geez, like fucking the gays really wrecked that <laughs> for all of us, right? God hates them so much that we're all <laughs> coughing harder now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. That was a bit of a snipe, but you know, <laughs> I got I to gotta get my self-satisfaction somewhere. In. <laughs> One of the things that this is, so going off that point, I think... The, one of the best things that could come out of this for a person. So sure. let's let's okay. let's talk about what this time can be used for. So one of my good friends was having a conversation with a with a former prime minister who said, "I'm so envious of uh, Kim Campbell." No, uh, <laughs> Brian Mulroney was was the prime minister, and uh, he said, "I'm so envious of the opportunity mm. that everyone has right now." And it, the, you know, all the, the young former people, prime minister all, said yeah, this. Okay. All the young people have right now. He's like, mm. if you're single, this is an amazing time for personal reflection. 
and creation uh, and creation and um and really like you're not going to have this extended period of freedom yeah in the same way probably we won't ever again in our lives like say unless a worse pandemic well unless something yeah i mean okay Uh, let's just say (laughs) probabilistically we're not going to to have an opportunity like this again Mm. uh and if you're married or you have children or you're you know you you live in in community with other people there's an opportunity to engage with one another Mm -hmm. in a way you would not normally be when in your busy lives and my mom brought up a really good point where she's talking to families who are saying we used to fill all of our days with sports and activities and now we don't have any of that Mm. and we're realizing that we were really filling our time with distractions with distractions and this comes to my point about death (laughs) our society has sanitized it has avoided it doesn't talk about it we everything like it's it's not something we see in a way that say you you saw in medieval times or even 200 years ago mm-hmm. and because we have pushed death out of the you know vision it's not even really in our it's barely in our periphery vision we don't think about it but then covid suddenly mm. i mean you have to think you don't have to think about death but it brings disease and mm. fragility right into the, right in front of us and it leaves us with that you know amazing line that the slaves would whisper into the ears of the conquering heroes in Rome as they would come in on their triumphs memento mori right remember you must die when you remember that if you accept that mm. I'm not there yet. This is not a fully formed idea. But if you can come to accept it and actually live a life with death in mind, I think it it's going to allow for maybe a, a shrugging off of the things that plague us as a society a bit. I think our, our, our inability to reflect on and understand the inevitability of death has has caused a huge amount of anxiety. And perhaps this is an opportunity as an individual to really reflect on life. Mm. And what what do you not just what do you want out of it? Like not just a taking mindset, but a understanding of the value that life has. Yeah. And and filling it with the things that matter. Mm. Yeah. No, it's a good uh, time for a reevaluation. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. You know? So I see all these memes on the internet about, oh, what did you learn during COVID? Like, what skill did you gain? Right. You know, what did you use that time for? And I guess if I could, you know, make a suggestion myself, it would be use this time to figure out who you are mm. and apart from all of the external realities that you live. Yeah. Because it is just kind of you. Well, I have to say, in general, I find internet memes, they can be a little bit funny, but mostly I just find them pretty stupid. And they're (laughs) doubly stupid in the time of COVID. (laughs) Because often internet memes are contrived to make an impression on someone like that's their entire point yes as opposed to 
someone making an impression on you when they're not trying to, right? Like you're right. just noticing them. So it's like the whole way social media works is that you post something with the knowledge that you're going to, like the whole point of it is to be making an impression on other people. Right. Right. As right. opposed to observing it's someone's image crafting. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so there's just some people who post these so rankly lowest common denominator memes of a political band about this COVID that I'm just, it's like, I I know you in real life and you're not this dumb. How are you posting things that are so obviously stupid? Well, <laughs> and so I, I, I have, I, I guess I am, I lose my patience and my maybe tact around my opinion on this matter as we are in a pandemic and our economy's tanking. Right? <laughs> right, right. You put the stakes high enough, quit posting fucking dumb memes. <laughs> Do more important things than that. <laughs> I love it. You guys haven't heard this, but I, at some point I'd love Luke to do his rant on fires and <laughs> and grok. That was a Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could do that another time. But um... But yeah, no, I I your point is well taken. It, it's so cheapened when you see memes of what are you doing to improve yourself over this? Just do that without the memes. Well, <laughs> right? and I like, mean, like uh, just uh, figure uh, out what you care about. Yeah, but uh, like, I mean, this is... I think a lot of people haven't figured that out. Okay, well, what is the imperative from the Oracle of Delphi? Know thyself. Yes. Right? Yeah. This is the whole pursuit of Socrates. And in a sense, this is an opportunity for us to make conscious again that subconscious, I think, yearning in a lot of people to know themselves, to know what they care about, and to be a continual form of self-discovery. And the only caveat there is that I don't think... It's wise to think about it in the context of, oh, I'm going to do that in a time frame. Well, no. So I would consider this self-isolation quarantine period as a great opportunity as a continuation or even a beginning of that process of self-discovery and knowing thyself. Reading books, watching movies. Maybe I'm talking more to you and me right now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, learning an instrument, figuring out how to edit video. You know, like who knows? Like the stuff you can do from home. Learning how to cook more. Yeah. But like the whole kind of self-creating existentialist viewpoint, I, I wouldn't be doing the idea proper justice if I didn't point out that if you go back to your old habits once COVID's over, you kind of miss the point in the first place. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, I, I do like that. That's, uh, you're right. You're, so it's, it's a good opportunity. So I guess, my, yeah. But don't close the door no, on no. that. Well, like, don't, uh, yeah. So let, you're, you're, this is good. You're helping me clarify. Our, okay. our dialectic is, is encouraging. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> <laughs> so what I mean is wake up. And I'm saying that to myself as much as I'm saying it to anybody else. <laughs> um, probably more so, to be honest. Wake up to the fact that you only, well, as far as we know, like the present is all we've had. We've talked about that. Mm. And if we can't raise our awareness level, Right. Our, per our awareness of ourselves, our awareness of our the impact of our actions on others, and our awareness of how we are shaping our own realities, mm -hmm. then we can't do that now mm -hmm. when we're alone. Not alone, well, necessarily, but... It's um, a perfect opportunity now yeah. to do it because not so unlike we were talking about earlier how with all of these social norms, the subconscious has to become conscious. I think there's a parallel in the individual. 
right? This is a perfect opportunity for the subconscious to become conscious. Well, Pascal said that all of the problems in the world are because, you know, you've said this on the podcast before, because people can't sit in a room alone by themselves. Mm. Or sit in a room alone. Yeah. It's redundant. Um, It's like redundancy all over again. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one, but it was at my expense. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) Um, No, my point is, I think if you pay attention... You will begin to see things you don't like about yourself in this time. Yeah. And the a lot of people I've talked to are drinking way more than they ever did because they they're being confronted by these things in themselves they don't want to have to deal with. Oh yeah, well. <laughs> and I'm saying use this for what it's meant for, which is to to dig some of the you know, barn mucking. Mm, there's right. a great there's a great great uh joke. It's a very Catholic joke, but, um, <laughs> you know, so a nun is, is doing confession and it's lasted about an hour and a half and the, and the, and then she, she goes out and, um, and then the, this, this, you know, kind of rough and tumble vagrant kind of guy comes in and does his confession and only lasts five minutes. And he's like, mm. why is my confession so short and the mm-hmm. nuns is so long? And the priest says to the, the vagrant, it's like, it's a lot easier to muck out a barn than to clean a china shop. Right. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm saying, let's at least start mucking the barns. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll give a muck about that. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. I mean, I'm tempted to end on such an eloquent flourish, <laughs> but one other thing occurred to me that's a little bit more prosaic, but I think important to this whole discussion is that when you were talking a little bit earlier about why COVID seems so scary, even if something like the average age of death is over is 84 which is higher than the average lifespan in canada anyway <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's a funny kind of dissonance you're pointing out there we would be remiss to not point out an important uh, distinction between things that seem psychologically important and things that seem statistically important and this is a great meditation i think on the difference between for lack of a better term the subjective and objective truth about the world the parallel i would draw is like well why do people care so much more about terrorism than car accidents right terrorism is causes way less death and carnage than car accidents do and yet it captures our minds i think more terrifyingly way more terrifyingly right and that that distinction is important for psychologists and for just like general people to understand is that it's because of the intention of the terrorist is like it's well it's human now it's not exactly the same because obviously the virus isn't human but it is new so we don't know. So like the, the we don't know about it is kind of similar to terrorism, right? Right. And the it's the we don't know about it-ism and it's happening right now-ism that I think those two things, especially together, are what makes COVID so terrifying, which is why we go in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. As opposed to other risks about our society, which we have trade-offs for, which are, you know, car accidents is the best example. And there's many more that I can't think of off the top of my head. But why... I think the marriage of both of those aspects of our head, which is like the subjective, the psychologically resonant and the objective statistically relevant, is that the subjective is, yes, we don't know it, so we need to lock down now and do that for a while. But why statistics are important for policy is, well, we can't do this forever. Yeah. And we shouldn't be hoping to do this forever. So we need to figure out what sort of statistics are reliable that we can use to make long-term projections about what we could start doing in our society again. And they're both important, is the point, right? Yeah. So it's important to 
react to something like COVID or something like terrorism when it happens, but then to be able to think cool-headedly about it afterwards, right? So even I think it was done on one of Dan Carlin's podcasts. He was talking to Sam Harris. Then they did a, their crosscast about how he thinks it's a good idea for the U.S. to adopt a, I can't remember what it was called. It was like a, if there's a terrorist attack, you can't make a law for a month yeah. about how to respond to that. That makes attack, perfect sense. Right? Yeah. yeah. So we, we can't be reaction. Ask, yeah. We should be. So, th- so I'm going to uh, say a few things about that. The first mm. is. A lot of people are, are saying, oh, we overreacted. This is awful. Well, there's mm-hmm. a, that, that, that's a counterfactual. We don't know. Yeah. We can't know. Yeah. Like the by by act. Which is why the Sweden example could is going to be really interesting. It's going to be really interesting yeah. on an intellectual level. Yeah. But we don't know. Or a policy level even potentially. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. But here's the problem. If we hadn't reacted in the way we did and it was terrible or, <laughs> or even worse than we yeah. projected – then there would have been no forgiving the people who didn't react. <laughs> and, right? of course, the dumbass protesters <laughs> in the United States would be the ones complaining about how the government didn't do anything. Exactly. So it's a really, I mean, it's a catch-22 that you're in because yeah. if it had, and, and we didn't know, like you said, it's the it's the unknowing mm-hmm. that is the terrifying part. I love that. That is a great insight. It is the... It's the fear of the unknown. Well, think about it like this. Our kind of normative day-to-day life is spent basically entirely in control of the situations we find ourselves in, right? And and when things aren't in control, we know who to call kind of thing. Like, oh, my heater's broken. Call the furnace guy, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, my car's getting low on gas. Go fill it up with gas. There's gas stations everywhere, right? So I think that uh, uh, humans have, at least, you know, in modern life in the west humans have worked really hard to not have to work that hard (laughs) true (laughs) right like we've designed our systems to kind of take care of all the overhead for us and so i think what happens is you fall into that complacency of like well what do we do when the unknown comes around again which is something i would argue our ancestors were a lot more equipped for than we are (laughs) yeah we're (laughs) right we're we're overly specialized and that's a little terrifying but yeah well, and I mean, the division of labor creates a lot of wealth, but it also means no single person really knows what to do. Yeah, like <laughs> about specific. Things. You and I would have trouble if the that's, grocery store is closed. Well, yeah, and that's the um, uh, what's it called? Like the pencil thought experiment or the pencil paradox? Yeah, nobody knows how to make a pencil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, can you think of a more minuscule, micro, relatively unimportant thing than a pencil? And yet, who do you know who can make one? Just from scratch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts? Oh, I probably have lots, but I mean, I think yeah, we'll think probably do good. this yeah. again. Yeah, um, <laughs> if this lasts all summer, we'll definitely do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even if my tone seems like I really know what to say about all of this, honestly, I don't. Like, I I'm still kind of like unsure about how I feel about this. Like, there's a part of me that really wants to just be like, "What the fuck? Why aren't we all just out of our houses? This is so stupid." But then there's another part. It's like, well, if we do that, it could be a lot worse, and in this unknowing, this is probably the safer route. Yeah. <laughs> right? So. Well, I think as a society, we've essentially agreed on that. Yeah. Right? I mean, so. it's like, it, it's like you have two, you're in a boat and you have two different paths to the shore and one of them you can see rocks and one of them you can't. 
Right. <laughs> and so like, we're going to go on the not rock shore. <laughs> we're going on the ones that we can't see rocks. That doesn't mean there aren't rocks there, but we know for sure there are rocks in that direction. <laughs> so we're not so going, we're not that, going way. that way for now. I like that. That's a great, that's a great way to wrap yeah. it up. Yeah. Anyway, um, I guess this has been another not actual episode of Really True Fiction. <laughs> My name is actually David yes, Parker. <laughs> and it still is Luke Mason. And um, honestly, uh, if you like this if you like our podcast you can follow us you can subscribe on apple podcasts uh spotify i think we're on the other major ones too i just don't know what they are um you can send us an email at really true fiction at gmail.com you can like our page on facebook because this is a contemporary issue i mean obviously if you have any thoughts about any things we say or just corona in general please let us know we would love to talk to you about it so have a good one thanks guys